Hey, legends, you know, none of our interviews or episodes ever date, ever. They are all timeless and ready for you for when you're ready to listen. Download the lot and rip in. The following is rated MA. Some people may find it offensive. It contains language, adult themes and immature content, as well as fart jokes. There will be lots of fart jokes. Listener discretion is advised. You've been warned. Welcome to the Weekly Wodge. The Melbourne Cup is over for another year. Social media returns to normal and 95% of the world ignores horse racing for another 51 weeks. I hope you picked a winner or two, had a coldy or three and enjoyed your day. In the NRL, the silly season is about to start. The time of season where players leave clubs, clubs leave players and everyone gets a jersey. We'll go with a history lesson regarding player transfers and how it works or at least how it's worked in the past. The highest paid player to sign a contract in any year, either at his club or elsewhere, begins the ripple effect. That can be felt as far down as the final or lowest priced player to sign a deal. The top guy or guys go a long way to determining what market value of other players is. Here, our example is Cameron Smith. Smith's money in terms of salary cap is roughly the equivalent of two rep players or maybe three or four really good club players. So his decision could indirectly affect four other players and or four other clubs. Of course, what he decides directly impacts Brandon Smith and Harry Grant as well. And then the rippling effect actually multiplies. Each big contract impacts a club's cap and then it limits their buying potential. Importantly, elsewhere in clubland, all eyes are on the Broncos, who are the unknown in all of this. How many players, or how much player money, are they moving on? It could be up to half a dozen players, and possibly, possibly even three and a quarter million dollars worth of players. That's potentially affecting the same amount of other clubs, both in player numbers and contract amounts. That's if the deals are all struck with similar worth players. If it's a younger or emerging player, that multiplies again and again. We know at least, at the very least, the Dogs, the Dragons, the Titans, the Warriors and the Tigers, they all have money. They're all ready, but they're all waiting. And in a crazy way, so much of that depends on what the top earner Cameron Smith does. It's about to get fun. Life as a commentator is fun. The travel, the games, the social side of it. But it's not always a great day in the office. Fellow media man Joel Kane goes into one of the more different days of his career and how difficult it can be at times not to show bias against an individual or a team. Well, Andy, I'm, I'm not showing a bias to our side, their side, my side, your side. I'm, I'm showing a bias 
against the Newcastle Knights. I think it was the, the case in this game. Yeah. They'd had this battle with Canberra. They were struggling there, the Newcastle Knights, for a period of time. But whenever they met Canberra, it was always a battle royale. And what had happened uh, inexplicably the day before, my great mate from uh, – he's now the Warrington Wolves coach, Stephen Price. Yeah. He's having a few drinky-poos with myself at home on the, on the Saturday, right? And I'm scheduled to call the Sunday 2 p.m. game. Now, I must preface this by saying I'm very embarrassed by this yeah. because it's the only time I've been quite unprofessional in my uh, <laughs> you know, my duty of being a caller, yeah. which I'm sure we've all done once or twice. We but, have. But anyway, yeah, this one particular time uh, I'm having a few beers with said man Stephen Price and we get a visit from a bloke called The Big Man, right? Oh, dear. Yeah, so The Big Man's over, Stephen Price is over. And the last thing that happened that night, that Pricey was tucking me into bed. I'm naked and he's tucking me into bed. And I wake up in the morning and my wife said, Joel, you've got a flight to catch. You're going to Canberra. So I quickly get dressed and off I go to the airport. And I'm in one of those small planes. And you've done this flight a million times, right? It's a shocker. It's a shocker. And it's a little washing machine flight and I'm that crook. And I'm in the in the plane with Kevy Wallers and Gary Belcher and we land and I said, boys, I've just got to go to the bathroom. And being professional, I haven't shared my situation with yeah. the boys. So I go to the bathroom and Badge goes, oh, mate, geez, you're in there a while. Was it a number two? And I, I came clean at this stage. I said, no, Badge, it was a number three, right? So I've had an up and under and I'm that crook. <laughs> so all I'm thinking about, you know what it's like when you've had a few drinking poos. The next day, there's not 24 hours in the day. There's upwards of 40, right? Yes. <laughs> so you're looking at that clock and I'm looking at the playing clock and the, the, the Raiders are doing it comfortably and they're going to win, right? And, or well, vice versa. I can't even actually remember who was leading. But anyway, there's this kick from the touchline and this kick from the touchline for a try scored on the bell is going to take the game to golden point, right? Oh, <laughs> Which is the last thing I need. Yeah. The last thing I need. So the director knows about this and you know about that little green button, which is a sneaky button where you can talk off air, but to the director. Yep. And here I am. And, and I need to remember whether it was the Knights or the Raiders who, who made the comeback. But anyway... It might have been the Raiders. Say it was Aiden Caesar, you know. Here he is, Aiden Caesar from the touchline. A huge kick. Exciting stuff here for Canberra. I press the green button to the – and everyone in the world wants this to go to Golden Point. Yeah. And I press the green button to the director. I said, please miss it. Please miss this kick. I need this day over. (laughs) Caesar from the touchline. He's kicked it. He's kicked it. What a remarkable goal. We're going to Golden Point, you beauty. Right? And deep down, I'm just in my chair. I'm sulking like, no, this day's never going to end. I had a call that afternoon uh, from a Fox director who, who um, quite senior at the time, and they said, mate, that's one of the best calls you've ever done. And I, I will never, ever put myself in that scenario ever again, Andy. It was, it was the longest day of my life. I love it, Joel. <laughs> You're listening to Andy Raymond Unfiltered. Want to be part of the team? We have both corporate and private sponsorship packages available. You set the terms. Check out the website at andyraymondunfiltered.com.au or send an email to Terry, that's with an I, at andyraymondunfiltered.com.au. This is the Weekly Watch on Andy Raymond Unfiltered and it's Feature interview time. Joining the podcast, a 245 game, a premiership winner, as well as 11 origins and three tests. It's Bo Scott. Mate, four clubs over your career, Sharks, Dragons, Knights, Eels. 
Who do you support? Who do you consider as your side? Oh, I've got to go back to the Dragons for that one. Um, yeah. The amount of time I spent at the Dragons is uh, very enjoyable and obviously successful, which probably made it enjoyable, obviously. And uh, I guess I was a junior down there. I was, I was an Illawarra junior, yep. actually. So that was before there was St. George Illawarra in the juniors as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time down there and they're pretty close to home and close to heart. Let's go back to your debut. It was for the Sharks, round 22, 2005. I reckon it is the perfect start to an NRL career. You made three <laughs> dreams come true on one day. You debuted, you scored a try, and you almost took Cameron Smith's head off his body. That is a very <laughs> eventful first game, my friend. Yeah, it was a nervous first game, obviously. Um, everyone's going to have the nerves pumping leading into the NRL debut, but I guess... Uh, yeah, a couple of boxes ticked all in one day, and we even got a visit to the judiciary that week. So I experienced it all in the first uh, first week of my NRL career, and I got off, but which was good, uh, exonerated, which my old man was pretty stoked about. So uh, yeah, and no, it was a good debut. I enjoyed it, and um, I sort of set up the following year off the back of a couple of games. We actually played semi-finals that year with the Sharks yeah. and against the Dragons. We got kicked out at the end of that year, but. Um, yeah, as a, as, a, as a good start and it led into a really strong preseason, which I played um, all but one game the following year for the Sharks and then found my way back to the Dragons the following year. Mate, if we go all the way back there, you're a fleet-footed centre. Which coach first moved you into the back role and do you recall the conversation and your reaction? It was actually um, why Nathan Brown brought me back to the Dragons for, to, uh, to play back row. So... That was his uh, his grand plan on my return to the Dragons to, to throw me a bit closer to the middle of the field and in, in the back row. And just happened to be we had a heap of injuries that year and I played a fair few more games at centre before I uh, yeah found myself firmly stuck in the middle of the field, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a coach saying to a young fella, we reckon you've got a bit going for you, but you're too slow to be a centre as you get older? Is that the nice way of saying that? I'm not sure what he was trying to get across in that conversation, but um, I don't know if it was too slow or too clumsy with the ball or, or a combination <laughs> of both. <laughs> Mate, a 14-year career. If you look back, what do you recall most fondly? Was it 2010? Uh, 2010 would have to cap it, um, followed closely by a few other experiences along the way and in origin wins and um, debuting for Australia over the other side of the world with with my old man there on the sideline. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I have to go back to the 2010 grand final. It was a, uh, it was a special night for, for myself, for teammates, and a lot of uh, die-hard Dragons supporters. Uh, 32-8 from memory over the Roosters in one of the most comprehensive victories in recent grand finals. I mean, it, it just clicked on GF Day that year for the Dragons, didn't it? Oh, the second half clicked. Um, I don't know about that first yeah. half. That was a bit nerve-wracking, sitting in the sheds at half-time. And, and uh, I remember Wayne speaking, but I don't remember myself listening. I just wanted <laughs> to get back out there for that second half. Or, or maybe I didn't. I wasn't sure either way. But, uh, yeah, we, we knew that first 40 minutes of the football on Grand Final Day wasn't us as a club. We knew that we had to go out there and, and just, just play our footy and get the job done and um, probably the most enjoyable last 10, 15 minutes of the game I've ever been involved with because we knew it, we knew we had to wrapped up on the back of what we'd done defensively 
um, leading into that game, and we uh, we really could enjoy that uh, that time with ourselves, with our, with our uh, family, and, and the fans, obviously. And same year was that your Origin debut game two, I think, from memory, 2010. Uh, 2010, yeah. I um, that was another sort of weird little story to go with that too. I was playing centre again, um, leading into that game. I. I Wayne, Wayne again tried to push me out into the back row, a bit closer to the middle of the field, but we uh, were a bit short on centres in 2009, so I ended up playing nearly that whole season in the centres, and along with my little mate Jamie Soud, and um, had Matty Pryor in the back row there a fair bit, and Jason Knight going on our wing on the right edge, and uh, anyway, that was 2009 and led into 2010, and sort of got stuck out in the centres a little bit again too, and... Um, Actually made my debut uh, at for New South Wales in the centres, and then I remember going back to club, and we brought Mark Gazzia back from France. Yeah. And uh, obviously he's going to get a start in the centres of myself, <laughs> so sort of rocked back up the club, club land, out of Origin camp, out of making my debut debut in the centres for New South Wales, and I uh, get shifted to the back row. So. <laughs> yeah, that was another little sort of weird twist throughout that year, but that was a um, sort of a blessing in disguise because sort of played the rest of my career a bit closer to the middle of the field. Mate, a shocking knee injury ended your career early um, with Parramatta, but it, it looked like potentially last year that your sporting career wasn't over. There was... Uh, Possible interest in being a potential opponent for Justin Hodges in his short-lived boxing career, but you're only given a couple of weeks' notice, weren't you? Yeah, it's a bit of a rush thing that one, and I guess things like that where I've sort of never been in the ring before. I want to give it the uh, the due respect it deserves, and, yeah. and obviously uh, get a full training um, season or a compliment to go into a fight like that. So yeah, that one got put on the back burner too, and. Um, don't know about boxing. I'll see what happens down the track, but uh, it's a brutal sport, that one. Isn't it? Mate, who do you reckon was your main origin rival? One fella you always went at it with and wanted to get it on with. If you had to name one Queenslander, would it be Hodges? Would it be third man Sam? Uh, G.I., <laughs> who you, you had a scuffle with? Who was the one that you wanted? Oh, uh, no. I guess during origin, um, I had... Uh, the great Jonathan Thurston to, to uh, try to contain, I guess, in yeah. that way. Between him and GI, I had me uh, hands full, but yeah, I definitely uh, GI is a hard one to handle, and you knew it when you tackled him. And um, yeah, probably a toss up between uh, JT and GI. I know it's a redneck thing to say. I love my origin, but gee, it's changed without the fights. Um, and I know, yeah. I know we've got to be politically correct because it's 2020, but it's a completely different experience to the one we grew up watching. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I even saw that through my origin um, career. I guess at the start there, it's sort of a free-for-all and you get, get away with a little bit more in origins than you do at club club yeah. footy, and that was an enjoyable part of it as well. And I guess after Gal wrecked it for everyone, I guess the little guys could be a little bit more cheekier than they used to be without uh, copping one round the back of the year. Exactly. Thanks for dropping in, great man. Chat again soon. <laughs> He's ridden more horses than John Wayne, 
and tough? Well, Chuck Norris calls him when he's in trouble. Jason Hetherington, Bulldog, Marone, Kangaroo and Storyteller. What a beauty. I win... Uh I won, a, I won a prize actually at Canterbury. I got player of the year and won a prize up to Hamilton Island. And he, anyway, I get up there and doing the touristy thing and having a look around and yeah, wife and I are up there. And anyway, there's a couple of Japs. One, the the the, um, the wife stand in front of the big welcome to Hamilton Island sign. And old hubby's taking a photo. He got the big camera on the hip. And <laughs> anyway, I'm looking and thinking, oh, he a couple of Japs, just tourists, you know. So yeah. I'm doing a nice thing and I go over and I, and it's funny. You start talking like them, thinking that you're talking <laughs> Jap and they understand you. <laughs> anyway, I've gone over and I said, uh, uh, me take photo of you and wife together. <laughs> me take what photo? You stand with wife. Uh, me take photo. Egon, you're Etherington from Bulldogs, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> hey, bastard, born in Sydney. He spoke better English than I did. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, he born in Sydney. Born and bred. Uh, yeah, he had better vocabulary than I did. Uh, I'm a, I'm, he said, shit, that funny accent you got. <laughs> oh, oh Jesus oh, Christ! What was your response? To you? Oh, I said, you just oh, had to tuck it up and get, walk away. I did, mate. I yeah. said, sorry, mate. I I thought you'd tourist, Jap tourist, come over. Yeah. Anyway, he said, oh, I'm a tourist, all right, but I'm born in Sydney. <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, I know you are. <laughs> yeah, keep supporting the Bulldogs. Yeah. See you next year. Fuck so, off. I said, sorry, mate, I apologise. Yeah, my accent, I've got to pick up on me Japanese. <laughs> he said, I'm not even Japanese, mate. <laughs> anyway, he got me a beauty. You do. Or I got myself. Want to know what's coming up on the podcast? Well, stalk us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Andy Raymond. Share the love and share the posts. Joining us on the weekly watch, Australia's foremost boxing journalist, and in my opinion, the greatest non-ring contributor in the sport for decades. The great Paul Upham. An indifferent weekend for Aussie boxers overseas, my friend. Yeah, it was. Look, first of all, the positive, George Cambosis Jr. Wow, you know, what an impressive performance at lightweight. Uh, an eliminator to get a world title fight. He beat a former world champion, uh, Lee Selby, over there in the UK. And, you know, it's people underestimate how hard it is for Aussie boxers to go overseas on the road in somebody else's backyard and, and, and win. And regardless, one judge had the local UK fighter winning. I'm sorry I didn't see that. I thought George won maybe eight or ten rounds, you know. He's done it the right way. You know, I remember him as a young kid coming out of the, the Costa Zoo Boxing Academy and he's um, positioned himself in the USA where he's promoted by Lou Bella. And that's so important for an Australian fighter to have a, a world-level uh, promoter getting him the fights out there. Uh, but he was very classy, looked really good, and he's going to fight the TFMA Lopez, who's just become the undisputed 
lightweight yeah. world champion. So great opportunity for George next year. Um, and, you know, I give him a good chance. Um, as far as Jason Maloney, look, no shame in losing to someone like Anui. Uh, you know, he proved to be, you know, if he's not in your top two or three, boxing pound for pound, well, I don't think you know the sport. He was so classy, so impressive. He's promoted by Bob Arum now. They want to make a big-time run for him for the USA. And look, coming out of Japan, he's just so impressive. The hand speed, the combinations and the power. And look, Maloney gave everything he had. He, you know, he just wasn't up to on the night. Um, he's got to go back and reassess. He, he could come back and, and, and be a force at, at Bantamweight or at Super Bantamweight, but he needs to, go, you know, take the lessons learned and say, okay, where have I got to improve now? But it was a really, you know, hard-hearted performance. He gave everything, you know, he could do, but it just wasn't ready for that sort of fighter. Yep, two guys overseas, one win, one loss. Always a pleasure, Ruppy. We'll chat soon, my man. Thanks, Andy. Oh, what the f***? Still on boxing, this knob and this story fit perfectly into a what the fuck segment. Controversial former four-weight boxing world champ Adrian Broner has been jailed for contempt of court over a civil lawsuit matter against him. Broner was ordered to pay a woman who he had sexually assaulted in a nightclub in 2018 just over a million dollars, but claimed he was broke, therefore couldn't pay up. He filed with the court a document suggesting he had just $13 to his name. Then Dum Dum puts up on Instagram... Photos of him with wads, massive wads of cash. Also, in another video, Broner listed his monthly spending. Why you do that, I've got no idea. But it showed he spent over 4.2 million Australian dollars over the last three years. The judge, Nancy Margaret Russo, questioned why Broner claimed to be broke despite flashing so much cash. To which he replied, I've got rich friends. I do. I've got wealthy friends and they take care of me. The judge obviously didn't buy the line and threw him in jail to await another hearing. It's the second time he's been jailed this year. Mr Broner has continually defied every court order I've given, Judge Russo said. The gig is up today. Broner, known as the problem and also AB, about billions, also his initials, was also known for flaunting his worth throughout his career. He's faced multiple criminal charges over both sexual assaults and battery in the last decade, in a career that's also seen him turn to rapping after failing to be offered his demand of $10 million to get into the ring. He claims he'll pay the court order next year when he plans to return to fighting. We won't be getting Adrian Broner on the Legend Series anytime soon, that's for sure because that's reserved for the good fellas, and not all of them are. We hope you've been enjoying the in-depth interviews. If you haven't checked them out, it is a must. Stacey Jones, Brent Tate, Jamie Simpson and Craig Bellamy most recently, and next week, an immortal Mal Meninga, like you have never, ever heard before. It was the best thing I've done in life, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, besides get married and have kids and, you know... Um, all the, all the sentimentality that comes around all that. But that was the best thing I've done personally in my life. Not only for me, but for my family. Um, there was always, you know, stories around, you know, blackbirding and, you know, the Kanakas, um, you know, taken off the island to work in the, the sugar industry of, of Queensland and northern New South Wales. 
um, we never never quite understood um, why our great grandfather, you know, chose to stay, or how he yep. how he how he stood how he stayed in, in Queensland because of the white Australia policy, you know, was rife at that time. Uh, so yeah, so that that journey for me and and for my family, and not just in my greater family, it just wasn't you know the three bros and um, and but it, all my cousins, you know, we've got yeah. plenty of those those people hanging around on this earth as well. So uh, for me, it was, yeah, it was a, the greatest journey because we, we finally understood, you know, how did Mary Ellen Kelly come into our lives? You know, a white Irish woman. Um, why did, you know, great-grandfather, was it because of the white Australia policy? Was it because um, he had to marry a white person to, to stay here, you know? Um, we, and through that journey, we found out all the, all the, the answers to those questions. So what we did understand is that he jumped off the rocks at you know South Tanner Island, um, swam out to the Roderick Drew do for better life. And that was his motivations. He jumped off there. He wasn't black birded. Um, he wasn't coerced. Um, he, it was his decision to jump off the rocks. And um, and we also found he you know he obviously made his way to Meriburra and then he was you know cutting cutting a cane cutter around that region yeah. for a number of years. Um, found his way up to Mariba as well. And eventually we found found out that – and the way we, we tracked this, Andy, was quite remarkable because the number on the Roderick Do, right, was the number four. So that's how we traced his number uh, wow. from Tanner Island, South Tanner Island, to Queensland and all the, the areas that he worked in by the number four. Wow. So, you know, and ironically, I mean, that, that that touched my heart because, you know, when you look at origin footy, like I'm number four. Yeah. I'm the Queensland yeah. of, of all time, you know. So um, so that was fantastic. In 30 years of interviews and interviewing, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever been a part of a more honest, more complete or emotional interview than Mal Meninga's. That's next week on the Legend Series. It is must listen. If you're enjoying Andy Raymond Unfiltered, please go to Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening and subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating and review. If you don't, I'll send my mother-in-law to your place for the weekend. And trust me, you don't want that. And the winner of this week's hat, Grant Leahy. Leahy, lay, not sure, L-E-A-H-Y a.k.a. Bertie. You beast, you're this week's hat winner. Thanks for the weird review, you freak. The Apple Analytics come through weekly, a breakdown of where people are listening, how they're listening and what they're listening to. We know the top device is an Apple iPhone. 9% of people listen on Spotify and Western Sydney loves their unfiltered podcast and also that not one ugly person has ever subscribed. So it's official. We have the best-looking listeners in the business, and that includes you, you good sort. Ah, there's nothing like a happy ending. Did I really say that? That's us for the Weekly Watch for this week. Have a great one, legends. Don't forget to back Pikey in the last... We love you, Willie!